KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, one of our heroes died on Monday. Paul Farmer, who brought high-quality health care to some of the poorest people in the world, starting in Haiti. Amy Willens was a friend of his. She will talk about his work and his life. Also, when Biden took office, progressives look forward to a dramatic transformation of Trump's anti-immigrant policies. And Biden's initial moves were promising. But since then, many people have been disappointed. Ahilan Arulanantham, a professor at the UCLA Law School, is one of them. First up, we have to talk about Ukraine. This interview was recorded on Wednesday afternoon, the day before Russia's full-scale attack on that country. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, a little history here, some of which I had forgotten. Eight years ago, in 2014, that was when Russia invaded Ukraine and occupied and then annexed Crimea, which, of course, is against international law. You're not allowed to seize the territory of other countries by force and annex it to your country. At the same time, and this part I either forgot about or never really knew, Russia also invaded and occupied part of eastern Ukraine, which then declared its independence again in 2014 and formed what they called the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. Not exactly household uh, words. Um, not exactly household words until this week when Putin de decided to recognize the sovereignty of both so-called republics and then sent Russian troops there. And then, of course, Biden and Europe and Britain imposed sanctions, especially financial sanctions, um, which we know don't work very well. They haven't worked against Iran. They haven't worked against North Korea. They haven't worked against Cuba for 50 years. Presumably, Biden uh, knows about this. And this first group of sanctions is supposedly carefully targeted to hit Putin's inner circle without uh, uh, striking at the Russian people. The big sanction, of course, would be shutting down Russian oil and gas imports to Europe. Russia, I learned today, provides 40% of the EU's oil and coal and 20% of its gas. And if this crisis should escalate and these supplies should be cut off, Western countries, of course, will find oil and gas and coal elsewhere, but it will raise prices around the world, including in the United States. Um, so not good, not good. What does Trump think? Of course, that's the most important thing for us. What does Trump think? He said uh, he saw uh, the news of Putin's escalation in Ukraine on TV, quote, and I said, this is genius. Uh, continuing to quote Trump, Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine as independent. That's wonderful. A savvy move. Uh, and then he said that the Russian president had sent, quote, the strongest peace force I've ever seen into the, what were they called, the People's Republic of Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republic. So this is kind of a problem for Republicans because the rest of the Republicans aren't celebrating uh, Putin's genius. Um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and the leadership of the House Republicans issued a statement claiming, quote, Biden consistently chose appeasement. Uh, 
Lindsey Graham said, Mr. President, you're playing footsie with Putin. He's walking all over you. And many others made similar statements. So it's which is it going to be for the Republicans? Putin is a genius or Biden is an appeaser? You know, Trump doesn't really have any particular take on democracy, totalitarianism, autocracy, authoritarianism, that he doesn't really ponder, I think, the essences and the distinctions uh, of, of those. I, I think he responds to people uh, who he thinks uh, might support him and for the kind of strong men he would like to be. Uh, and so that, you know, that's what's, uh, what's guiding Trump. And we should remember, you know, in a, when he was president, he did have a meeting with Putin in which uh, in the press conference following, he was asked about uh, whether he accepted the CIA's description of a certain event or Putin's, and he said Putin's, um, you know, which uh, I think uh, Republicans are to a certain degree whistling by the graveyard uh, yeah. if they think they can ignore uh, what Trump is saying. This is still the person who is favored to be the next presidential nominee and how they square that circle with what uh, conventional Republican uh, soft on Russia attacks on Biden uh, may be. That's a conundrum. But here's the point. Trump isn't alone. Um, the uh, people who in the Republican universe who calculate that the Trump base is more likely to go along with Trump's preferences uh, you know, such people exist. They include Tucker Carlson. They include J.D. Vance, the uh, Republican Senate candidate who was desperate to get Trump's support, having once trashed Trump back in 2016 uh, in his run for the uh, U.S. Sen open U.S. Senate seat uh, later this year. Uh, Vance has said, well, Ukraine's really not our business. We should focus on the, the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, has also basically expressed, uh, you know, kind of nebulously pro-Russian sentiment, too. So there's a real divide, I think, in the Republican Party. And, and it, it's kind of almost a metaphor for uh, how the Republican Party base has basically made a, a kind of ideology out of Trump's own psychological weirdnesses. He can't accept the notion that he uh, was defeated. And so now this has become a holy writ in the Republican Party. He can't really bring himself to trash, uh, uh, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia for uh, its invasions of Ukraine and various uh, parts of the country. Um, and so we're beginning to get a, a, a Trump echo chamber as well. Uh, you know, this is you know, people talk about historically and currently divisions in the Democratic Party. Well, you know, there's a real division in the Republican Party, too. And a lot of this goes back, you know, actually uh, to uh, Pat Buchanan, who uh, started making positive remarks about Putin and his uh, clear homophobia uh, and uh, other policies that rejected the, you know, the uh, cultural liberalism of the West. Um, and that that strain has found, uh, you know, a more potent advocate in Donald Trump. 
So now we want to shift to uh, news of the class struggle in America. Yay. <laughs> Today's question, can the government level the playing field for workers? Harold, I think you've thought about this question. I have thought about it. Uh, yesterday, uh, the union that is uh, trying, uh, is running another campaign uh, to try to unionize the workers at the Amazon warehouse in, uh, in Bessemer, Alabama, put out a statement uh, sort of laying out some of the unfair labor practices that Amazon has been uh, waging to suppress union support, uh, including what are called captive audience meetings in which employees are required to go to meetings and um, listen to management side propaganda, uh, posting anti-union leaflets everywhere and forbidding pro-union leaflets anywhere. And famously, in the campaign last year, Amazon put up anti-union leaflets inside uh, the bathroom stalls. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, a, a kind of position where another <laughs> form of captive audience, actually. Uh, so uh, uh, historically, these have been unfair labor practices for which there have been no really serious penalties. But the, uh, the union, the RWDSU, in its release yesterday, quoted... Uh, from a memo put out by the uh, Biden-appointed general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, whose name is Jennifer Abruzzo. And Jennifer Abruzzo is waging a major effort within the uh, structure of the NLRB to uh, seriously penalize employers for violating uh, uh uh, labor practices, and she suggested a whole slew of remedies in this memo when a company does hold captive audience meetings and puts up its own leaflets and tears down the union side leaflets, requiring the company to uh, give over its, its list of employees and their home addresses to the union, requiring the company to let unions have their own meetings uh, that employees uh, uh, can attend uh, in, in company time, just like the uh, captive meetings that managements hold that uh, permit unions to put up its own leaflets and not have them torn down in the break rooms. Uh, you know, and, and so really, I, I think what the, the RWDSU is recognizing that there is a new sheriff in town on enforcing labor law. And, you know, Jennifer Abruzzo has gone well beyond this. She suggested uh, going back to a standard that was set uh, under Harry Truman's NLRB, uh, that if, a, uh, if, if workers designate majority support for a union, say by signing union affiliation cards, and then the company still refuses to recognize them or to bargain with them under the Truman era policy, the NLRB can simply declare the union recognized and uh, essentially compel uh, an arbitrated first contract. Um, because, you know, a lot of times, in recent decades, even when workers uh, elect to uh, form a union and the company acknowledges that the, they're a union, uh, the company just stonewalls on bargaining and no first contract ever, ever appears. Um, th this was a policy from the 40s through some point in the 60s. Then the NLRB uh, dropped it, and she's suggesting going back to that. So uh, this is a person really worth watching in terms of trying to level the playing field for American workers. 
And you can read more about that in Harold's piece at prospect.org. Meanwhile, meanwhile, on the union organizing front, there's news from Hershey's, the longtime anti-union company. About 1,300 workers at Hershey's plant in Stewart's Draft, Virginia, are voting on whether to unionize. Their ballots are being mailed February 24th, our broadcast day, and the results will be counted on, 20, on March 24th. This union is the Bakery, Confectionery, tobacco, tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, the BCTGM. Uh, what do we know about the BCTGM? Well, we didn't really know anything about the BCTGM until the middle of last year. It, it, it's a relatively small, old AFL union that, you know, never really made the headlines. But then this was the union... Uh, whose frontline workers were grotesquely overworked during the pandemic since Americans needed the kind of comfort food uh, they produced. And they struck at, uh, at Frito-Lay and they won major uh, modifications to the hours they had to keep and got significant raises. They then struck at Nabisco uh, uh, across, all across the country and won the same. And then finally, in a more contentious uh, strike. Uh, they uh, they struck at Kellogg's. Uh, these are the folks who give us our breakfast cereals. Uh, and after a long uh, fight in which Kellogg's really tried to uh, uh, bust the union, uh, they they won significant gains there as well. Now, uh, you know, and, and and I was writing. I should add, I was writing at the time uh, about how you know this is not a union that I had previously written about in you know 35 years of writing about <laughs> unions, actually 40 40 years right. of writing about unions. Uh, all of a sudden, it was kind of I think the poster child of uh, union uh, militants among a well-established union last year, along with the UAW at uh, uh, John Deere. And um, you know now it's it's moving into organizing uh, in, in in a new field. Uh, and so uh, let us hope again that they portend, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, sh a shift in, in unions. And I should add, this is also going on at a time when the unionization efforts at Starbucks are beginning to just blow up in, you know, lots of places. I think it's now into three figures, the number of Starbucks franchises, uh, not franchises, the number of Starbucks stores where workers are seeking to, to form a union. And we also see some news of uh, the employees uh, in Apple stores beginning to, uh, you know, move towards this. So, you know, th th there's a strong generational component here. Uh, we already know from polling that young people are the most pro-union uh, generation we've probably seen since the 1930s, if not even more so. Uh, and if you look at who's who works in Starbucks and who works in, uh, you know, uh, Amazon stores, uh, not Amazon stores, in uh, Apple stores, I mean. Uh, uh, you know, these are, these are bright young people who are primed to unionize, just like uh, all of the grad student uh, counterparts, and sometimes these may be grad students as well, <laughs> um, uh, you know, who, uh, who have been unionizing around the country. And so generationally, this is, a, this is a moment of significant potential for worker power. And thus we say all power to the, v, to the BCTGM. Yes, yes, clench fist, yes. Uh, <laughs> one, one last thing on the class struggle front. There's what is claimed to be 
a working class protest by truckers that is taking shape this week. The truckers convoy uh, modeled after the Canadian truckers protest uh, is heading for Washington, D.C. They one contingent uh, left Southern California on Wednesday. Washington, D.C. is calling out the National Guard to Uh, try to avoid what happened in the capital of Canada, where a a hundred big rigs surrounded the parliament and shut down downtown and where a dozen or so rigs shut down the major uh, artery connecting uh, the United States and and Canada for a week. Um, We're told that these are truckers. uh, of course, we're a little skeptical about that. What do we know about this so-called working-class protest to end uh, vaccine the mandates? Well, to begin with, vaccine mandates, um, you know, I mean, there aren't, you know, I don't think truckers actually have vaccine mandates. Uh, I'm not aware of their employers imposing them, and these are not truckers who work for the government. So I don't know quite what vaccine mandates this actually concerns. Truckers in general have a lot to protest about. As I've written in the last issue of the American Prospect, uh, their incomes are about half of what they were in real dollars when the industry was heavily unionized and regulated. And it's been a downhill spiral ever since. Uh, the, The jobs are really so crummy for long haul trucking that more than nine out of 10 long haul, you know, there's more over 90% turnover within a year among long haul truckers. This is more just a general right wing protest, not so much a trucker protest. Indeed, you know, the Teamster Union condemned the uh, protests in Canada, and I'm sure is, will do the same when, when these guys get really rolling here in, uh, in the United States. This is, you know, uh, just a general right wing uh, expression of Trumpian rage. Uh, the, uh, I just want to quote yeah. from their statement, although their their funding and a lot of their leadership comes from the far right wing networks, their statement says this convoy is about freedom and unity. The truckers are riding unified with people of all colors and creeds. Christians, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, Mormons, agnostics, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, Republicans, and Democrats, close quote. Uh, Even agnostics are welcome there. This is a real breakthrough for the far right, I think. Well, they, they, you know, the the right-wing dollars clearly got them a PR agency that decided to cover their ass, basically, (laughs) and hence agnostics, not atheists, I would point out, not atheists, just agnostics. Harold Meyerson, analyzing the fine print in the (laughs) statement of the so-called truckers, read them at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Paul Farmer died on Monday. He was one of our heroes. He brought high-quality health care to some of the poorest people in the world, starting in Haiti. He was only 62. 
For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was a friend of his. Amy, of course, is an award-winning writer, especially about Haiti. She's also the former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. And she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, thanks for talking with us today about your friend, Paul. Thanks, John. Well, what he achieved with Partners in Health, the organization he founded in 1987 is, I don't know what you can call it, amazing. I just looked up the statistics last year, 2.8 million outpatient visits in his clinics, 2.1 million women's health checkups around the world, over 2.1 million home visits conducted by community health workers. That's something like, I don't know, 7 million people helped in one year. He said, it's not about charity, it's about solidarity. I think that's a kind of a significant distinction. Absolutely. He never believed in just dumping things on people and then walking away. It was about accompaniment. The facts of his life, I guess you could call them unusual. <laughs> New York Times had a nice obit. They explained that when he was around 12, his father bought an old bus and fitted it with bunks, converting it to a mobile home. Paul, his five siblings, and his parents spent the next few years traveling, mostly in Florida. One summer, he and his family worked alongside Haitian migrant workers picking oranges, listening as they chatted in Creole. That was Paul's first encounter with Haiti. I know he told you this story. Yes, he did. We were sitting with, I swear, we were sitting with his um funders, the people who fund his endowed chair at Harvard, so very wealthy people. And Paul is sitting there and I've known him for years, but I'm never like, you know, oh, Paul, what was it like growing up being you and things like that? And he starts telling me he lived in a bus <laughs> with no. And I was just astonished because when you met him, you just thought, oh, this is a Harvard medical school genius. He didn't seem like he had some kind of strangely interesting, exotic, early biographical history. And then he dumped that on my lap. <laughs> I was like, whoa, as usual with Paul, totally modestly given, like in the course of an actual real conversation, this piece of information about him floored me. So he went to Duke and after he graduated from college, he moved to Haiti and volunteered in a little town in the center of the country called Conge. Is that my pronouncing That's that right? right? Conge. This was at the end of the Duvalier dictatorship when Haiti's hospital system was so poor that patients had to pay for their own basic supplies like medical gloves or a blood transfusion if they wanted treatment. The New York Times quoted a letter to a friend. This is actually from the Tracy Kidder book about him where he wrote, it's not that I'm unhappy working here. The biggest problem is that the hospital is not for the poor. I'm taken aback, I really am. Everything has to be paid for in advance, close quote. So Paul Farmer decided to open a different kind of clinic. And now there are 16 in Haiti with a local staff of almost 7,000. Have you visited any of those? Oh yeah, I visited the one in Kansh where he had been um, living with Haitians before he started uh, Partners in Health. And, you know, I walked in and there were Cuban doctors milling around. Cuban doctors are a huge big deal in the Caribbean. Beds and happy patients. And it wasn't designed for me to see. 
I just arrived with a friend of his and we were there. And, you know, it was, it's pretty amazing because when you went to the uh, university hospital down in Port-au-Prince, it wasn't like that. It was two to a bed. People had to make their own food or have their parents bring their food in. Uh, if you didn't have family in the area, you didn't get much food to speak of. And at Kanj, it was completely different. And then he founded this teaching hospital in Mirabale, 40 miles north of Port-au-Prince. That opened in 2013. It offers chemotherapy, a gleaming new CT scanner that costs almost a million bucks, three operating rooms with full-time trauma surgeons. And this is for poor people with difficult diseases who I understand pay about $1.50 a day for being treated there. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And it's an amazing thing when you see the hospital in Mirabale. It's just a big, huge hospital complex. And you can't believe you're in Haiti, to be honest. <laughs> and then, uh, but it's it had its problems because it was built in the wake of the big earthquake in 2010. It was always Paul's ambition to have a really great teaching hospital with Haitian staff and Haitian doctors learning more and giving their expertise. But it was hard to keep going. It's hard to keep going no matter what you do in Haiti right now, especially because of insecurity, but also because insecurity means uh, difficulty getting power and not having power for a hospital is, is a disaster, as you can imagine, as we all know from Hurricane Katrina. And also, um, even when you have generators to supply power for you, you still have to have the gasoline to fuel the generators and the gangs sometimes control gasoline flow around the country. So it's hard. And it was hard for Paul to keep that hospital going at the level he really wanted it to be at, which is he's always imagining the top kind of care that we can get in the US for his patients in Haiti. And that is not easy to do. You write in the nation that when you've asked him for quotes for your stories about Haiti, he always said the same thing. What was it? I can remember calling him from so many different places and getting the same answer. I go like, Paul, you know, <laughs> there's this controversy in Haiti and it's so-and-so is saying that so-and-so is stealing all the energy from this person and this faction and that, you know, hospitals aren't getting any uh, electricity now. And he goes, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes like, Amy, you know, I don't know anything about Haitian politics, he always used to say. I'm out in the countryside at Conj. I hang out with Haitians. We talk about the weather and the markets and, you know, which lady is bringing more charbon de bois to the market than which other lady. And we, I don't really know about this, but he would never say, I'm not giving you a quote. He would just not give me a quote. But <laughs> I course, never got a quote out of him. That's your first quote from Paul Farmer through me. <laughs> of course, he did know a lot about Haitian he politics. He knew a lot. And he knew, he knew more than I knew, certainly, about specific areas of Haitian politics, like the National Health Ministry, which he dealt with, unlike other NGOs, which came into Haiti health NGOs, non-governmental organizations from abroad, and would just establish their clinic, one clinic, and help one area and never talk to the Ministry of Health. Paul wanted to establish things that were sustainable. And the way he felt that you do that is you use whatever government is in place and you deal with them. And that was very hard. And he knew all about that. But, you know, it wasn't just you he didn't give quotes to. He didn't do this for anybody. And why exactly was that? To protect 
uh, his hospitals and to protect his clinics and to protect his staff because he knew perfectly well that if you get into some big fight with some important person in Haiti, it can mean trouble, not just trouble, the way like you might think of it in a developed country, but trouble that can be violent, that can mean turning off services to that hospital or that clinic forever, burning down things. Lots of bad things happen in Haiti, and he knew that, and he was just taking care of his people. You also write that you had disagreements with him about Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the first president of Haiti who was freely and fairly elected. What did you disagree about? Well, we both knew Aristide and still know Aristide, if I can say that about Paul, and were friendly with him on good terms. And uh, Paul was more friendly, I would say, because he wasn't a journalist. But Aristide was in the midst of many awful things in his second round at the presidency and, and toward the second time that there was a coup d'etat against him, greenlighted by the U.S. and the foreign friends of Haiti. And I was nervous about it, and I didn't understand who was responsible for the violence. And I worried that, you know, Aristide was going down some sinkhole. And I would ask Paul about it, and Paul would just like, freeze up. And then he would say, he's my friend. And that was it. No more conversation on that subject. What was he telling you when he said, he's my friend? He was saying, I'm not going to consider the possibility that there's any wrongdoing on the part of a person I love. And that was the way Paul was. I mean, he wasn't going to do that. And, and, you know, I always thought there was an element too in his protection of Aristide defense of, if you can call silence a defense, was that he was doing business with Aristide's government for his clinics. And it was the same reason. So the same reason he wouldn't give me quotes was the reason that even in private conversations, he was very careful. And what was he working on in Haiti for the past year? You said here more than once that things have gotten worse than ever in Haiti. And you quote him writing to you not long ago, I've got a pretty big target on my back, close quote. Yeah. What was he talking about? Well, you know, he wasn't always in Haiti in the last years. He was in Rwanda a lot where he did the same thing with Partners in Health there, big hospital, lots of clinics. Um, and he had worked all over the world. Don't think it's just Rwanda and Haiti, Peru, uh, Russia, right after the fall of the wall. He did a lot of work on tuberculosis there. He was a global figure. But he hadn't been back to Haiti in a while. And then uh, President Moise was assassinated. And um, the, the insecurity that had been reigning in Haiti got worse, even. And uh, people who had been going down to Haiti, like me and Paul, we got scared. And he has that bigger target on his back than I have on my back. And he was afraid that he'd be kidnapped and, and spirited away by exactly these factions that he would never talk to me about. Paul Farmer died in Rwanda. You said he had a big hospital there. What exactly was his connection there? I think he saw it as kind of another Haiti that was possibly going to be a little bit easier to work with because Haiti was just shifting and shifting and shifting under your feet and it was impossible. And, and Paul Kagame, the president of uh, Rwanda, was a progressive sort of in the mold of Aristide without maybe all the problems of Aristide, like coup d'etats by the Americans, which is hard you know, to have in Rwanda, although things like that have been done in Africa. But so there was a somewhat 
uh, an aura of stability around Kagami, who has also been seen as something of an authoritarian. But Paul figured he could get his hospitals built and help the Rwandan people. And he really, he did the same thing there. I forget the name of the town, Butari or something like that, that he did in Kanch. He was outside of town. He built the hospital. He had clinics and he started, you know, saving lives. To conclude here, I wonder if you could read from the end of your piece for the nation. Balance was not his thing, but justice was. Paul was really the best that humanity ever offers from its complicated ranks. He was all too decent and generous. He was all too quick and perceptive. He felt pity and love for the stranger and the destitute and the outcast. Haiti helped him see ways to make the right things happen for those last. He started there and branched out, but he never forgot. Even though he died in Rwanda, he never really left Kanj. Paul Farmer, dead at 62. Amy Willens wrote about him for The Nation. You can read her at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today about your friend Paul. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Biden and immigration. After Trump got elected in 2016, running on an anti-immigrant platform, progressives and liberals welcomed Biden as president. But many have been disappointed at what Biden's done on immigration in his first year. They say he's preserved too much of the Trump immigration policy. For comment, we turn to Ahilan Arulanatham. He's a professor at UCLA Law School and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy there. Before that, at the ACLU of Southern California, he successfully litigated a number of cases involving immigrants' rights, including the first case to establish a federal right to appointed counsel for immigrants. Ahilan has argued three times before the United States Supreme Court. One more thing. In 2016, he received a MacArthur Genius Grant. Ahilan, welcome back. Great to speak with you again, John. Well, The New Yorker recently ran a big piece about the disillusionment of a young Biden official, a woman whose efforts to roll back Trump immigration policies ran into opposition inside the Biden White House as well as outside. What's your assessment of Biden's first year on immigration? I think that piece is really illuminating because it does show us that there's been a shift in the Biden administration. It's not a monolithic picture. If you'd asked me this question after two weeks or after a month, I would have said they've ended the Muslim and Africa bans. They put a moratorium on almost all deportations to allow a real assessment into the fairness of ICE policies. They've ended the Migrant Protection Protocol program or the Remain in Mexico program, which required asylum seekers for the first time really in American history to wait in Mexico in these squalid and dangerous refugee camps that grew up during the Trump administration. They have to wait there for their day in court, which effectively ended asylum um, for a huge number of people, access to, to asylum. Um, and then, of course, there was the Title 42 program, which was the CDC order, again, driven by the Trump administration, which sort of ended what was little was left of asylum uh, on the basis of coronavirus protection. And although the Biden administration didn't end that right away, they promised that they would end it as soon as possible. So that, you know, I would have said, given a very high 
uh, high grade as to you know promises likely to be kept, you could say, um, at that beginning. But then fast forward a time and look at what's happened. You know, the moratorium was sued and they didn't defend it, even though I think there were many very strong legal arguments that could have been made to defend it or just to modify it slightly and defend it. And they just walked away from that, that court case. This, a similar thing happened with MBP, the program requiring asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. It was sued, uh, and then they waffled back and forth. At first, it seemed like they were going to just to allow that to go to go and you know to to, st- to be stopped, um, and let let the sort of Texas and the the court the states that had sued them win. Then they changed direction and actually tried to to you know end it end it again, but then that's been stopped. And now it's it's their policy is almost, is almost incoherent. I would say they are saying they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. They are appealing to the Supreme Court to try and win the right to to wind that program down. But at the same time, they've expanded its use on the ground and actually implemented it far more aggressively than they had to under the court program. So things were very good at the start, and now we've seen steady retrenchment over time. And and what about the number of people in ICE detention? I've read that, that the number actually skyrocketed over Biden's first year, but his Defenders say that's due to the pandemic receding. Is is that right? The number has skyrocketed. It's gone from about 15,000 on any given day at the end of the Trump administration, which was a a number very low um, compared to what we had seen going back uh, many years. And now it's up um, around 20,000. It's above 20,000 on any given day. And that is a huge year-over-year, one-year increase. It's hard to know uh, how much of that is attributable to the pandemic. Certainly, it's true that many of those are people who are being arrested by the Border Patrol. So you can assume from that that those are people arrested in the border region. But it's also true that the Border Patrol arrests a lot of people who have lived here for a very long period of time. Um, In fact, I've just been hearing about cases about that, people who have lived here for 20 years, but who live in the border region, arrested by the Border Patrol, have only very minor and old criminal convictions, have families that they're taking care of, and they're sent into ICE detention. And that's part of the population that the Biden administration is now enforcing the immigration laws against. Biden's new head of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas. And he recently gave a speech to mayors. It's the fullest presentation of what the Biden administration's current thinking is. He started by saying the most dangerous threat in America today is violent domestic extremism, which is certainly a lot better than blaming foreign terrorists or criminals coming across the border. He also said, quote, we will not dedicate our limited enforcement resources to apprehending individuals who have been here in this country for many years, who have been contributing members of our communities. Unlawful presence in the United States alone will not be a basis for an immigration enforcement action. Instead, we will allocate our resources to those individuals who present a current public safety threat, a threat to national security, or a threat to our border security. So we like that, too. Uh, And then he conceded distrust of ICE is earned, which is pretty significant. Then he concluded, speaking to the mayors, I will be coming to you and asking you to reconsider your position of non-cooperation and see how we can work together I am willing to work in increments with you. Well, this sounds very cooperative. I wonder what you thought of Mayorkas's speech to the mayors. Definitely think there's a lot of rhetoric and some substance to like in his remarks. Um, and I should say in general, I've, I have spoken with um, Secretary Mayorkas a few times, um, including once very publicly. And I mean, he has a deep knowledge of the immigration law. And you know, I, I think it's right to take his perspective seriously. 
That being said, the last part that you mentioned about coming to the mayors to try and increase local cooperation with um, local government cooperation with yeah, I- what does cooperation mean in this context? Right. What what it means is they want local government when they arrest somebody uh, or for, for whatever reason somebody has come into law enforcement contact. They want the local law enforcement agency to share information about that person with ICE so that Federal Department of Homeland Security and ICE officials can decide whether or not to put that person into their custody and then into deportation proceedings. And this has a long history. This is not something that just, you know, is is his first idea going back into the Obama administration and even slightly before. That part of his remarks I found deeply disappointing and also, I think, just completely wrong as a, as a, as a policy matter. Uh, really, there's really sort of no no way to defend that program, even though it, it certainly sounds really good on paper. Of course, many of our biggest cities have declared themselves sanctuaries where their official policy is not to cooperate by turning people uh, over to ICE, even people who are in jails. Certainly, in LA County jails, the largest jail system in the United States, actually, in the world, I think. And and most other uh, big cities have a similar policy. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. And California, even at the state level, has um, a policy not quite as protective as the one at the county level, but that also uh, largely prohibits uh, cooperation with ICE in this way. And I think there's two really important things to recognize about this. because it's, it's not It wasn't an easy task for all these cities and some states to end up with policies like that. Uh, and they evolved over a long period of time. And one really important piece of that puzzle was was recognizing, based on years of data, that cooperating with ICE does not decrease crime. It does not make people safer. And there's study after study, um, starting from 2014, a study out of the University of Chicago, uh, which was documenting from data earlier than that, then University of California, Davis, a recent one from Stanford, uh, researchers at Stanford. And what these have shown is because you have really good ways of assessing this because different jurisdictions have adopted different rules in different times. In fact, there's something like 140 jurisdictions in the country, state and local, which are cooperating with ICE now. Very, In fact, I think even more than that, very, very intensive cooperation, sharing of information. And so you can compare them to what they were before and then what they became later. You can compare to the ones that are and the ones that aren't. And what you see over and over again is that it does not have any effect on crime. Instead, what it does, we know, it destroys families because you take people who have finished serving their sentence and when they would have been reintegrated back into the community and sent back to their family, instead now they go to a new prison system, the ICE prison system, from which they get deported um, unless they can somehow find a lawyer and manage to get a day in court. Um, and then the other thing we know about it is all of this is piggybacking on local law enforcement practices. And we know, unfortunately, that local law enforcement practices in many parts of the country are racially discriminatory in an extremely serious way. Everything from which crimes you choose to prosecute. Are you, you know, prosecuting the people who are using cocaine in Beverly Hills or the people who are using you know, marijuana in uh, Montebello or in, you know, uh, in downtown L.A.? Right? We, we know how this works. And so when you just add ice on top of that, you piggyback on that then you're just compounding the effects of that racial discrimination. So I've been personally very disappointed by this because the government has all this data. The Biden administration says they want to be data-driven. They say they racial justice is a, is a top priority for them. 
And yet here they are out here, you know, making really the same kinds of arguments that were made during the Obama era. When we, and we know what happened. I mean, President Obama deported 2 million people. He deported more people in you know, his administration than the prior 200 years of the history of the United States and all of that. Uh, and, and here we are seeing the same thing again. So I, I found that, that very, very disappointing. At this point, the biggest uh, concern, the biggest opposition, the biggest outrage over Biden policy is not about local police. It's about the border, about the remain in Mexico policy, which where he is continuing uh, uh, Trump's policy. Uh, that means, according to activists, I'm quoting now, children and adults trapped in Mexican border cities face kidnappings, sexual assault, and other attacks and lack access to critical resources. That's from Monica Langarica. Tell us about her and why we should listen to her. Well, she, she's an attorney here at the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA, um, but she's based in San Diego and has been doing litigation and uh, advocacy and also representing asylum seekers um, in the border region now um, for something like seven years, I think, if I remember right. And so she's been sort of witness to what's happening on the border for all these years. And I think it's it's both been just enormously disappointing for advocates to see this policy, which ended effectively ended asylum for the vast majority of people seeking asylum in this country, turned its, our back on the promises that we made after World War II, when we saw what happened, when we turned refugees away. You know, and, and it's really an extraordinary shift that President Trump initiated. Um, and to see that continued and continued in this aggressive way um, has has just been yeah, I, I can't, it's, it's hard to put words on it. It's, it's so disappointing and so sad for for people um, you know there watching this humanitarian crisis continue when it's entirely of our own making. One other thing I think I would say about it is I was watching the presidential debate when I saw uh, candidate Biden give just an, ex an incredibly powerful, full-throated defense of asylum. He said, look, this is the way it's always been since we've had this. You get to come here and apply. That's what happens. You come here and apply. We don't make you wait in some other dangerous place when you try and get refuge in our country. And he won the election. <laughs> um, and, and yet now we've seen just this extraordinary, extraordinary broken promise on that subject. Um, I think that coupled with Title 42, of course, you know, which is also shut access to the asylum process, um, they've been, yeah, it's just, just very sad. And of course, everybody wants to know why. Why are they doing this? They don't have to do this. They promised they would not do this. Why are they doing it? I think that New Yorker piece may give us some insight into it. You know, I can't claim to know, but it does seem like there's a power struggle happening within the administration, that there are some people who uh, really do believe in asylum and, and want to engage in a, a more full-throated defense uh, of it, and other people who um, really fear the border politics and uh, fundamentally, for whatever reasons, are willing to renege on this basic humanitarian protection and commitment that the United States has made for, for a half century. Uh, and at the moment, those people seem to be having the upper hand. I think it's also true that the that the political, sorry, the the legal environment has played a role in this. I mean, the first thing that happened was they ended the the program, and we're in the process of winding it down. When the courts then came and said uh, that was illegal, um, but I think if they were really committed to it, if there was no ambiguity on their part, there's a lot of things that you could do to protect asylum seekers, even in the midst of this legal environment. And they just certainly didn't have to expand MPP and apply it so broadly as they've done uh, as they've done already. 
And one other immigration issue that we have talked about before is a temporary protected status, TPS. This is, uh, what is it, half a million people uh, from Haiti, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, a couple of other places, Sudan and Nepal, who've been allowed to live and work here in some cases for decades because of dangerous conditions in their home countries. Uh, we didn't think about this very much until the Trump years when Trump tried to deport them. And you, this was one of your big projects at the ACLU was to fight the ending of TPS. And you succeeded in delaying it. What's happening now? What is Biden doing with TPS? This is another great example of this um, kind of Jekyll and Hyde sort of approach. And on the one hand, the Biden administration uh, redesignated Haiti and expanded the set of people, Haitians, living in the U.S. who can be protected. Um, but then just very shortly after that, when a set of around 14,000 Haitians uh, came to the border uh, and were, were um, you know, in this refugee camp in Texas trying to get into the United States, obviously facing the same conditions. They hadn't been in Haiti in a long time, the set of people, but they were facing, if they were deported there, the same set of conditions that were the basis for granting protective status to Haitians. They deported them all summarily without even giving them a chance to apply for asylum. Um, and now we're seeing the same thing with Venezuela, oddly enough. So President Trump, former President Trump, granted a form of protection to Venezuelans. And one of the first things that President Biden did was he, he gave a more firm footing to that by making that into TPS. So President Biden granted TPS to people from Venezuela, obviously feeling, fleeing the Maduro regime. And you know, there's many good reasons why several million people have fled Venezuela. But now the Biden administration is trying to deport Venezuelans who are coming here now. In fact, they just concluded some kind of agreement with Colombia so that many Venezuelans who are coming here seeking asylum are being deported to Colombia, even though they can't be deported to Venezuela. Um, you know, as to the, the primary people who are my clients, the, the population of people who have lived here, as you said, for decades and have held TPS all this time, that remains in limbo at the moment. So we have been in a negotiation with the Biden administration about trying to end uh, that litigation and create some kind of form of permanent, we can't win a permanent protection, but some kind of form of, of extended protection for this for this population of people. Um, but it's been a hard, I mean, I can't say too much, obviously it's a negotiation, but it's been a hard negotiation. And it, it doesn't feel like we're negotiating with people, the same people who wrote the promise, which is on JoeBiden.com's website that he will protect these people. <laughs> it does not feel like that. It feels much more like we're negotiating with people who are adversaries. That's definitely been my my experience of it. We all appreciated Mallorca saying that they would not apprehend individuals who have been here in this country for many years who have been contributing members of our communities. That's something that defenders of the immigration have argued forever. Yes. Uh, and if that were actually the practice on the ground, I think we would all be so much happier. Um, but unfortunately, even the, the memo implementing uh, Secretary Mayorkas's uh, policy does not have in it any clear lines. It doesn't say uh, you should not, as guidance to ICE officers, you should not arrest anyone who's lived here more than, say, 10 years or 20 years. It doesn't say you can't uh, proceed to try and deport somebody who's been taking care of their children, minor children, or their parents, or who's an essential worker, or or just because they have a, their only conviction is a misdemeanor, or is only for drug possession, or something like that. Um, and anecdotally, uh, we have heard 
since even this memo went into effect, so just I'm talking about now the last you know four or five months, um, that there are still ICE officers uh, and, and ICE attorneys prosecuting cases like that. Uh, I heard about a case um, of a person who had been here more than 20 years in this country with extensive family ties. Their only conviction is for a nonviolent misdemeanor from the year 2000, uh, yet ICE is proceeding in court trying to get that person deported. People eligible for DACA, um, a mother of three American children, one of whom is 12 years old in Chicago, who was detained for 10 months. Her conviction is a counterfeiting, a counterfeiting conviction. She was in jail for one day for this conviction, but there she was, and she was only released after a huge release, you know, a substantial campaign, a political campaign to get her out. So these things are still. I mean, there's a man. There's a man who was pardoned by the governor of California, Ricky Chun is his name, a Cambodian who, uh, man who led a lawsuit against tr uh, President Trump, the Trump administration, for trying to deport all these Cambodians with very, very old convictions. He's pardoned by the governor of California, and ICE is not uh, willing to, to give up his case. So I just I just think, you know, th they say the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing again and again and expect a different result, right? I mean, these policies are just like the policies that were happening under the Obama administration. And we saw what happened to the Obama administration. So I think it's really the onus is on them, um, on Secretary Mayorkas and, and, and um, his agency to show how these policies are actually being implemented in a way um, that, that has really created a change in ICE. Otherwise, what you believe is it's the same people doing more or less the same things that they've, that they've done before. Ahilan Arulanantham. He's a professor at UCLA Law School and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy there. Ahilan, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. It's always great to talk with you, John. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.